It's anti-science, a concerted agenda-driven effort to communicate non-scientific, unscientific beliefs. That's what's so dangerous today. That's what vested interests have been advocating, have been pushing forward, and have been spreading. Today we have with us Michael E. Mann, PhD. He is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science and the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State. I'm delighted to have him with us today to talk about his book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Michael, welcome. Uh, thanks. It's great to be with you. So right off the bat, tell us, you know, why do you invest so much of your time answering questions from people outside the science community? Doesn't that interfere with your research? Well, you know, I um, sort of started out uh, really focused um, almost exclusively on scientific research as a graduate student and then became a postdoc. Uh, we published this study in 1998 um, uh, that presented the first version of what's now uh, come to be known as the hockey stick curve. And it demonstrates uh, fairly, uh, you know, uh, fairly vividly um, the uh, warming uh, of the past century and a half and how unusual that is in, in the context of the last thousand years. And it became, sort of a, a symbol in the climate change debate. And I found myself at the center of the uh, often very fractious, uh, larger sort of public debate over climate change and what to do about it. And so you might say I was sort of forced into the public square or the public sphere, um, but I have come to embrace that opportunity, although it's not what I signed up for. You know, I can think of uh, no greater privilege than being in a position to inform this conversation about what is arguably the greatest challenge that we face as a civilization. Michael, it wasn't like the hockey stick chart was the only piece of evidence. It wasn't the only pillar of truth, yet it really sort of seemed to resonate. And, and why was it such a lightning rod? Yeah, so we, we've got a mixed metaphor there. The, the, the hockey stick became a lightning rod indeed. And, uh, you know, as you allude to, the science was really already there. Um, in 1995, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, published their second assessment report, which uh, had concluded that there was now a, quote unquote, discernible human influence on our climate. So already years before the hockey stick had been published, several years before it had been published, the scientific community had presented evidence that climate change is real and it's human caused. But a lot of that evidence was pretty abstract. It was based on methods to compare patterns and models to observations. I think what was different about the hockey stick is that it really laid bare uh, the profound nature of this impact that we're having. Uh, it was a striking visual presentation of the dramatic warming that we've seen over the past century with these very modest changes a thousand years ago until the 20, you know, the 19th century when we start to see temperatures uh, shoot up. And the shape of that curve resembles a hockey stick uh, turned on its side uh, with the blade representing this dramatic warming. And I think it really drove home in a profound way uh, the reality just the, the stark nature of the impact that we were now having on our planet. And because it did so, because it was so visually um, alarming, I suppose, 
it received the scrutiny of uh, climate change contrarians, climate change deniers, fossil fuel industry front groups, uh, those advocating for them who sort of uh, focused all of their effort and attention on trying to discredit this iconic graph. Um, and since I was the, uh, the, the, the first author of those articles, a lot of those attacks were aimed at me individually. And, and tell us, you know, personally, what, what happened to you? What happened to your life? How did that uh, manifest itself uh, after you published the Hockey Sick Graph? Yeah, and you know, I wrote a, a book uh, some years ago that's more about my experiences in the climate change debate called The Hockey Stick and, and the Climate Wars. And it really is about, um, you know, how, what it was like to uh, find myself caught up, um, to, you know, suddenly thrust into the public sphere um, and attacked by fossil fuel interest groups, like I said before, those advocating that for them, but uh, conservative media outlets like the Wall Street Journal and Fox News. Um, I had conservative politicians like uh, uh, Joe Barton, who was the chair, uh, the Texan uh, from tech, uh, Republican from Texas, who was the chair of the uh, the House Energy and Commerce Committee and basically tried to subpoena all of my internal emails and documents to look for something to discredit me. Um, he was, by the way, one of the largest recipients of fossil fuel money in the U.S. House of Representatives. I don't think that was a coincidence. Uh, he ended up leaving office a few years ago. Some of your uh, viewers and listeners may remember. Um, uh, he ended up texting some inappropriate photos of himself. And so he's no longer a congressman. Um, but he's just one of a rogues gallery of right-wing politicians, Ken Cuccinelli, former attorney general of Virginia who went after me, James Inhofe, climate change denying senator. Um, and all of these people, of course, were basically doing the bidding of the fossil fuel interest groups who, who fund them. But, you know, I would be at the receiving end of vitriol. Um, they would sort of energize the what we now think of as the base, you know, sort of Trump supporters um, back then this sort of um, group of disaffected people, conservative politicians, conservative media outlets like Fox News, Wall Street Journal, telling them that all of their troubles are due to scientists like me who are getting rich off of promoting the scare, the, the hoax of climate change, and often providing our email addresses or our, ad, our physical addresses. So all of that vitriol was focused on me and I was at the receiving end of death threats, uh, credible death threats, um, received a white powder um, in a, an envelope, uh, an envelope with white powder that had to be investigated by the FBI. Um, there were actionable threats against my family. Um, that's just a day in the life of uh, being a prominent scientist um, speaking out about uh, the reality and threat of climate change. Over time, uh, I've learned to develop a pretty thick skin um, to recognize that as personal as it might sometimes feel, uh, it's really about something much larger. Um, you know, uh, the effort to discredit me and to intimidate me is intended to cause me to withdraw from the public conversation. And my instincts have been to do just the opposite. Um, I, if perhaps I've been emboldened by the attacks against me because I guess it speaks to the fact that if these powerful interests really don't want me out there talking about this, maybe I've got something important to say. So, so, you know, you talk about all these examples of where these industry front groups and 
climate denier for hire scientists use misinformation and lies to try and discredit scientific evidence. If the information they're sharing is false and the science proves it to be so, why do people believe it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and, you know, part of the story here is that people are starting not to believe it. Um, and that's the transition from what I call the old climate war, which was the war on the science, uh, the effort by fossil fuel um, interest groups um, and, and polit conservative politicians and media outlets doing their bidding to convince us that climate change is a hoax. It's not real. Um, it's invented by the scientists. It's really difficult to convince people of that when they can see the impacts now playing out in real time. And I think that's where things have changed over the past few years. The impacts of climate change have become so vivid, so profound, that we see them playing out in real time. And it's no longer credible for the forces of inaction, I call them the inactivists, to convince people that climate change uh, isn't real, or at least to convince most of the public that it's not real. And so they've turned to a whole nother, a whole new array of tactics, which I guess we could talk about um, later, that constitute what I call the new climate war. And, and that is indeed the topic of, of my new book. But, you know, a lot of the denial traditionally came, uh, it was ideologically based, right? Um, it wasn't based on facts and logic. Uh, it, to be a sort of... Um, you know, to be a loyal member of the sort of conservative tribe, you were told that you had to deny the science of climate change. And that's because, again, fossil fuel interests realized that they uh, needed, you know, a, um, you know, for lack of a better word, warm bodies to win elections for them. So they needed to weaponize a segment of our population to actually advocate for policies that go against their self-interest. I mean, most of those those most hurt by climate change uh, often are frontline communities, those, you know, lower income, uh, lower down uh, on the economic spectrum. Um, and many of those people, uh, ironically, have been sort of weaponized to vote for the Republican Party and to support their agenda of climate denial because they've been told that that's part of being a loyal Republican. They've been told by, you know, messengers who are really working for the fossil fuel um, industry. And uh, as a result, it's become, you know, part of the ideological imprinting uh, of what it means to be a Republican today. It doesn't come from a place of logic and reason. That makes it really difficult to deprogram because it isn't about the facts. It's about, hey, I've got to be loyal to my tribe. I've got to deny climate change. And of course, that was true more than a decade ago. What's profound to me is that sort of world of alternative facts and, and, and denial of evidence that was sort of this um, local cancer when it came to our public discourse over climate change has now over the last 10 years metastasized to infect our entire body politic. And we now see that play out when it comes to you know, the battle, for example, to uh, deal with the pandemic or just the fact that you know Trumpism was able to thrive because it was effective in getting so many people to deny the facts that were plainly in front of them and to believe in an alternative universe where things are completely different from what they actually are. Uh, that, that remains a challenge and there is a sector of our population 
that sort of remains weaponized now against any efforts to sort of convince them that climate change is real and something we need to, 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 to do something about. The good news is we don't actually need to bring those folks along. Uh, if we focus on what I call the sort of persuadable middle, the confused middle, um, that will be enough to have a coalition uh, for meaningful climate action. In fact, we're seeing that coalition now come together. Um, so why are all these right-wing outlets like Fox News and the Wall Street Journal editorial page and Breitbart and Newsmax and the Drudge Report allowed to publish smears and lies with impunity? We have defamation laws. I don't understand why this is so and what can be done to fix the situation. Yeah, it's a good point. And I won't get into the details because I've been involved in uh, bringing a defamation suit against some of those um, uh, groups. But, uh, you know, uh, the, the bottom line is that, um, you know, we live in this world now where it's become okay in some circles to simply engage in, you know, bald-faced lying. We have a president who told so many lies every day that the media had trouble uh, keeping count of them. Um, they numbered in the in the thousands, uh, many thousands of lies. And it's just sort of the problem is they're throwing so much mud on the wall that it becomes really difficult to scrape it all off. Um, and it becomes really difficult to take on every single lie. The media, mainstream media tried to do that, um, you know, really to no avail. It was very difficult to combat this fire hose of misinformation and disinformation that was being spouted by Trump and, and those advocating for him. Uh, so that's the larger problem. Uh, what we have to work toward, in my view, um, we have to recognize that some of those folks are essentially unreachable now, but they're pretty small fringe, maybe 30% of the population. We don't need 100% of the population for meaningful action. Uh, in fact, as Democrats in the Senate appeared to be ready to demonstrate, we just need 50 Democrats and a, vi a Democratic vice president who breaks a tie vote to advance climate legislation. And I think we may see that um, happen through reconciliation, a simple majority in the Senate. Um, we don't need 100% of the public on board, but if we can get most of the public on board, and I think most of them really are, uh, then that's gonna be enough. We can't wait for every straggler. If we do that, then we're never gonna solve this problem. Within the scientific community, peer review helps ensure that papers published in scientific journals answer meaningful research questions and draw accurate conclusions based on professionally executed experimentation. But the same cannot be said of social media, which has become the primary source of news discovery for at least a quarter of the global population, according to the 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer. Originally, I welcomed social media as an agent of liberation. Yeah. Uh, but what I got instead was an industry uh, of surveillance capitalism willing to trade metadata about its users with the intelligence community and to appease elected officials in exchange for the right to amplify lies with impunity. Yeah. What can be done to restore truth to our democracy? Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? And uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we, 
initially thought that, you know, the internet and social media would be these amazingly democratizing tools. Um, and initially they were, but we've also learned that any effective tool for communication will ultimately be um, hijacked by, again, special interests. Um, in this case, the forces of inaction, uh, fossil fuel interests, uh, bad state actors, petro-state actors like Russia and Saudi Arabia um, that have seen fit to wield social media as a weapon against climate action, interfering with domestic politics uh, about climate change here in the U.S. and Canada and Australia and France and around the world. Um, so, yes, unfortunately, we've learned that anything that might seem like a tool to advance the cause of democracy, if we're not careful, can become a weapon. It can become weaponized by the opponents of democracy and vested interests and plutocrats um, and others who don't have the, you know, the best interests of, of the people in mind. All we can do is use the tools that are available to us to fight back. And in my book, in the new climate war, uh, really a major part of the message of this book is how to recognize the tactics that are being deployed by bad actors on social media, for example, how to recognize them, how to effectively combat them. And sometimes it's a judgment call, realizing sometimes if you engage, you may end up amplifying, you know, a troll or a bot who otherwise wouldn't have been able to get their message out. So you have to be careful in the battles that you choose. But the key thing to recognize is that your audience isn't the trolls and the, and the bots who are promoting the misinformation. You're trying to win over people caught in between who are subject to it. Um, those, are the, uh, th those are indeed the target audience for these disinformation efforts. And we have to make sure that those people don't fall victim to it. And so in, in the book, I talk about a lot of the tactics that are being used today, in particular to divide us, to get us fighting with each other on social media, pointing fingers at each other when it comes to our carbon purity, our lifestyle choices, because that's a, that's a huge win for them. If they can get us doing that, they've deflected the conversation from the needed policy changes and regulations and systemic change to just a melee about individual action and uh, behavior. Um, they have then uh, also divided the community of climate advocates. It's sort of a divide and conquer um, uh, method of, of making sure that we don't speak with a unified voice demanding action, demanding change. And it's also a very effective way of taking some of our most uh, effective opinion leaders and messengers. And I think of folks like Al Gore and, and Leonardo DiCaprio, who have been immensely important in sort of getting the message out. And so often they will be targeted. Um, you know, Al Gore, they went into his trash cans to find his energy bills and then cherry picked, you know, uh, you know, some of the lines in his energy bills to make him sound like a glutton, or they go after Leonardo DiCaprio and call him a hedonist, a jet setter. Um, the idea is to invalidate them as messengers, to tar them as hypocrites, so they are no longer effective messengers for change, or at least to limit their effectiveness, to redirect the attention, redirect attention from the needed systemic changes to individual behavior, deflection, and division. It's sort of a threefer. And so we need to recognize when those tactics are being deployed and try hard not to play into them. 
because we are so, the real message of this book, we're so close now. We really are close to seeing the action that we've worked for for so long. We can't allow these obstacles to remain the only thing in our way. Michael, before we get into the book, because I want to get into the book, talk to us just, I, I want you to explain to us what was ClimateGate? So ClimateGate was perhaps, um, you know, uh, the most well-organized, well-orchestrated uh, disinformation campaign in the history of modern civilization um, until its sort of, um, until its, uh, progenitors uh, came into play uh, more recently, like Russiagate and the attempt to, uh, to um, uh, the attempt by Russia in particular to elect Donald Trump. Um, but a decade before Russiagate, before that was even a thing, we had ClimateGate. And you'll recognize some of the tactics and some of the actors. Stolen emails, where have we heard that before? not Hillary's stolen emails. These were emails of climate scientists like myself, stole, uh, stolen off a university server in the UK, the Climatic Research Unit of the UK, email conversations between different scientists. Um, and they were combed through and individual words and phrases were taken out of context to try to make it sound like, you know, the science was a hoax, like the scientists were engaged in misconduct. Um, um, and, you know, there have been, I think, nearly a dozen investigations now that found there was no impropriety on the part of the scientists. These were just efforts to distort what they were talking about or what they were saying. But at the time, it proved a very effective weapon in sort of stymieing uh, climate efforts. Uh, this happened right in the lead up to the 2009 Copenhagen summit. And it was used, for example, by Saudi Arabia and Russia um, to uh, argue that, you know, the science wasn't there. Look at these emails, they prove climate change is a hoax. We don't need to do anything. It was used to sabotage those uh, proceedings. So, you know, who are the players, um, Russia, uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange played into this. Stolen emails. It sounds a lot like Russiagate, which was an effort to thwart um, uh, the 2016 presidential election between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, which had, by the way, huge ramifications for the fossil fuel interests of Russia. Uh, Russia's greatest asset is the fossil fuels that are still buried beneath their, uh, buried in their grounds. And um, they had a half trillion dollar oil deal that they were trying to get through with ExxonMobil uh, to mine uh, much of the remaining petroleum reserves um, in uh, Siberia and other parts of Russia. The only thing standing in the way of that half trillion dollar oil deal between ExxonMobil and Russia's state oil company, Rosneft, were the sanctions against Russia for their actions in, in Ukraine uh, from the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton would have kept those um, in place. The Trump administration was going to try to get rid of those sanctions. In fact, at the Republican convention, now infamously, um, Paul Manafort, who was in fact a foreign agent working for Russian and Ukraine uh, interests, um, tr successfully got the language in the Republican platform changed to remove support for the sanctions against Russia. 
Um, that would pave the way for this half trillion dollar oil deal. Who did Donald Trump appoint as his secretary of state? Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of ExxonMobil. This all played out in plain sight. Relatively few journalists have talked about it. Rachel Maddow of MSNBC is one of the exceptions. Um, and so the, the hacking of the 2016 election in favor of Donald Trump by Russia was to further their fossil fuel interests. We now increasingly think that that's exactly what ClimateGate was 10 years earlier. It was Russia and other petrostates helping perhaps Saudi Arabia working to thwart global action on climate by hijacking the all important 2009 Copenhagen summit, which was the first opportunity in years for meaningful climate action. So, so they steal these, they hack into the server in the UK, they steal these emails, then what? Do you have any visibility operationally into what they actually did to promote misinformation and to take things out of context? Was it just basically them saying, oh, I saw this email, here's what it says? Or was yeah. there some other sort of communication apparatus at work? There certainly was. And in fact, I go through that in some detail in, in my previous book, the, the Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, um, sort of through the whole morphology of that uh, disinformation campaign and the ontogeny of that uh, disinformation campaign. Um, and you can Sorry, see- Sorry, I have to stop you because I don't know what ontogeny means. <laughs> the, uh, it's a biological, the development, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, the, the development, um, uh, how it uh, sort of um, unfolded. Is, I was trying to use scientific language <laughs> to say it in a fancy way, um, how, how it un unfolded and what um, form it took. And, and I go through that, I dissect that, uh, to use some more biological terminology, I suppose, um, in, in, in that book, in that previous book. Um, and what you see here was, although we can't really, you know, we, we've never been able to, it's a cold case, we were unable to really catch the perpetrators in the act. And so we only have indirect information about who was involved. We know that the emails early on were hosted um, on Saudi Arabian and Russian servers. Uh, we know that again, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, which became, you know, weaponized for the cause of Russia in the last election was um, uh, also involved in distributing these emails. And so what they did, they had clearly had access to these stolen emails for months, but they waited until uh, November around Thanksgiving time in the lead in to the Copenhagen summit to reveal them, to unveil them, because the effort was um, intended at getting them out there, sort of at the last minute, getting their narrative out but not providing enough time for the counter narrative of truth to finally, you know, rebut the allegations. And if you look at what happened, it was, it was hosted, there's, there's quite a bit of circumstantial evidence that it was bad petrostate actors like Russia, Saudi Arabia, who were involved in the crime. And we now know that Russia does this sort of thing, all the, it, it has their fingerprints all over it, um, cyber crimes of this sort. But it was the fossil fuel industry and the various front groups that they uh, 
support. Um, the usual conservative media outlets that have you know, basically acted as an echo chamber for the fossil fuel industry, the Murdoch media empire, Fox News, Wall Street Journal editorial pages, New York Post, um, the Murdoch tabloids in the UK and Australia and elsewhere around the world, um, trumpeted this message and did so so effectively, so consistently, so incessantly that it ultimately forced even the mainstream media to start to adopt their narrative and to actually parrot many of the allegations to the point where you had CNN um, and CBS Evening News parroting uncritically many of the false allegations of ClimateGate before, again, there was time for the scientists and the various legitimate uh, institutions to litigate this and to ultimately demonstrate that there was no veracity to the claims that were being made. That took years to play out, but the damage had been done. So without getting into the specifics of your defamation case, because I don't know, are there systems in place? Do we have laws to deal with this kind of thing? Is there some sort of accountability you know, you, you said there was um, an investigation into what the scientists said, and in fact, there was no skullduggery, but it, was there an investigation into the bad actors who stole the information? And is there an investigation when media parrots misinformation? Is there any accountability in the yeah. news media world? Well, that's a great question. And again, we sort of we can see that now writ large in our politics in, you know, in the last two presidential elections where we saw the same tools being deployed by the same actors. And we learned that we are still quite vulnerable to state-sponsored disinformation efforts. Um, you know, uh, it's, we were especially vulnerable over the last four years because we had a president who collaborated with, benefited from those disinformation efforts and wielded the federal government as a cudgel against any efforts to do something about it and to rein in the bad actors. That all changes now. Um, and the Biden administration right out of the gate has signaled that they're coming after bad state actors like Russia um, who have engaged in, you know, unlawful um, behavior. I think we're going to see consequences now for that. Um, so I would say watch this space. I think we sort of turned the corner on that. We've got a Justice Department that's actually interested in justice. And I, I believe there's going to be a crackdown on sort of state-sponsored disinformation efforts, as well as internal sort of domestic um, domestic uh, campaigns by bad actors, by fossil fuel interests um, and dark money groups to do the same. Just really quick, there was a uh, essay in the New York Times we can review on Sunday by Professor Emeritus at Harvard Business School named Shoshana Zuboff. And the headline was The Knowledge Coup. And I'd like to just read a little section from it. She's writing about um, how the uh, social networking giants were really complicit in, this whole in these misinformation campaigns. And she says, the key to this story is that the politics of appeasement required little more than a refusal to mitigate, modify, or eliminate the ugly truth of surveillance economics. Surveillance capitalism's 
imperatives turned Facebook into a societal tinderbox. Mr. Zuckerberg merely had to commit himself to the bystander role. Um, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and, and what she says is, you know, if we talk about moderation and fact-checking, we're focusing too da far downstream. We need to be focused upstream at data collection. And she actually makes the argument that, you know, if you strip mine me for my dreams, hopes, and, and preferences, right. uh, you know, you're it's separating me from my inalienable rights. I own those yeah. things. Yeah. And yeah. so she makes uh, an argument for, uh, you know, regulating this sector as the only way of saving our democracy, which I thought was fascinating. Well, I, I will read the article just from your summary of it alone. It Ripping. seems very on point. It seems very Ripping. on point. I mean, yeah, yeah, it monopolized my Sunday. Yeah. Okay, so now in your book, Michael, you write that it's no longer possible to deny climate change with a straight face because there's just too much evidence. Now they've shifted to a softer form of denialism based on deception, distraction, and delay. And you call this the new climate war. Yeah. How have the enemies of climate action changed their tactics to adapt to the modern information battlefield? Yeah, it's been remarkable to watch that adaptation take place sort of in, you know, over the past several years as the evidence, as you, you just said, has become so clear that you, you can't deny climate change is happening. Um, but, you know, ultimately, they just care about keeping us addicted to fossil fuels. They don't care why we remain addicted to fossil fuels. Um, so that means they, they just care about the destination, not the path we take there whether it's denial, whether it's delay, whether it's doom uh, mongering, right? If we become convinced that it's too late to do anything about the problem, that can lead us down the same path of inaction as outright denial. Um, and so there's some evidence that's, that bad actors are fanning the flames of doomism, because look, a lot of their effort is aimed at sort of securing political conservatives for their cause, for the cause of the fossil fuel industry. But some of these techniques are aimed at actually winning over progressives by convincing them uh, that it's too late, you know, and, and what better path to disengagement than being told there's nothing you can do about a problem. They, they want progressives, uh, environmental activists, climate advocates disengaged. Um, they want climate advocates fighting with each other we were talking about that before and, and all the better if they can get us fighting with each other about our individual lifestyle, our carbon purity, because then it deflects attention away from those systemic changes we need, the policies we need, the regulations we need um, that will hurt their bottom line, the fossil fuel industry's bottom line towards just our individual behavior. It's a distraction. It divides us. Um, false solutions. Uh, we don't need to reduce carbon emissions. We can just engage in massive carbon sequestration. We'll just continue to burn coal, but we'll we'll get the CO2, um, 
you know, before it get, makes it into the atmosphere. Well, we're decade, decades away from that being able to, to be done at, at a meaningful scale. So it simply is a way of them buying time, saying, no, let's not decarbonize because we'll, we'll fix it down the road. That's true of a lot of these so-called geoengineering uh, solutions, supposed solutions. We'll shoot particles, reflective particles, sulfur uh, dioxide particles into the stratosphere to reflect some of the sun back to space to offset global warming. What could possibly go wrong, right? The uh, principle of unintended consequences reigns supreme with many of these uh, supposed alternative solutions. Um, or, you know, uh, we will, or natural gas, somehow a bridge to, you know, a clean energy future, as if a fossil fuel can be the solution to a problem created by fossil fuels. Um, or, you know, we just need to adapt or let the market innovate. There's this whole discourse of innovation and adaptation that, well, there's a grain of truth that we need to do those things. We, um, the idea that that alone is the solution, as I say in the book, you know, when someone like Marco Rubio tries to tell his fellow Floridians that yes, climate change is real, but the solution is to adapt. What does he mean? That they should grow gills and fins? Because that's the only way that the millions of people around the world who are displaced by uh, sea level rise will be able to cope with the inundation of the coastlines, which force them inland. And they're competing now with other people um, for the, the, the smaller amount of inhabitable land that exists. More people, less land, less water, less food. What could possibly go wrong once again? So all of these things, all in, it's a scattershot approach. It's just a way to distract us, to deflect attention, to get us thinking and talking and demanding anything else but the real fundamental solution to this problem, which is decarbonizing our civilization as quickly as possible. When you think about, like you, you reference uh, Naomi Oreski's book, uh, Merchants of Doubt, in your book many times, but that was written in 2015. What's different now? Like when you read her book and when you wrote your book, what what new experiences are are we having are we are we having today as a result of disinformation uh, campaigns in the modern information world? Yeah, I would say to some extent the the new media and and social media which even over that 6 year period has ramped up so dramatically just the the extent to which Twitter now Govern so much of our, um, you know, uh, political and social discourse. Uh, a president whose primary means of communication was indeed Twitter, which he weaponized for his ends and for the ends of the the very bad actors that we're talking about. Um, and so the battle has largely moved online, and it, it it's exploited the weaknesses that you and I have been talking about here, in in sort of our public discourse today, in our social media environments and how they're easily gamed and weaponized. Um, that I think has ramped up in, in a way that I don't think we could, even could have imagined five years ago, how dominant it would become. And it enables a whole new set of tactics when our entire discourse moves into the social media space. It means that those actors who are able to hijack and, and weaponize um, that space 
can be that much more effective. And I think that's really what we've seen. And so what they've been able to do at a time when the impacts of climate change have become so profound, you can't deny it anymore. They've still been able to use the immense power of the online world and the social media world to make all of these other, to get all of these other arguments out there, to advance all of these other fronts in the new climate war, um, getting us to disengage, dividing us, uh, despair-mongering, deflecting attention, delaying meaningful action, kicking it down the road um, through rhetoric and through bot armies and professional trolls who have really gamed our public discourse now in a way that advances the cause of inaction using all of these insidious and nefarious tactics. Have you ever gotten a glimpse of one of these troll farms or the, have you ever seen one of these operations? Yeah, it almost makes it sound like an ant farm, right? Like if you could look, just look down and see, I wish we could. Well, in a sense, there are some windows um, into these troll farms that are a little bit like that. And they're provided by certain uh, journalistic outlets uh, that have, you know, cyber divisions where they're able to use tools that you and I don't have access to, where they can actually watch how an online conversation um, spreads and who's getting involved and when it appears that there are large numbers of bots that are entering in, what keywords are being used to, um, to direct the conversation. So there are sort of cyber journalists who have investigative tools that are beyond what I have in, in any case, who have sort of dug into this and they've been able to expose you know, these tactics that we're talking about. They've been able to demonstrate, for example, that there were clearly bot armies that were being weaponized to steer the climate conversation in, a, in, a, in an unconstructive uh, uh, direction. And in particular, trying to alienate progressives against climate action. Uh, you, you, this was um, true uh, in particular among uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, you, those we were supposed to believe were Bernie Sanders supporters and Bernie eventually came out and said, these people don't represent me. They're not my supporters. These are trolls and bots who want you to think that that's what I'm saying. And they were being used to drive a wedge, for example, between Sanders and Clinton, who are actually fairly close in the big picture on climate action, um, differed on some, some uh, key points. But they wanted to drive a wedge in there, alienate the, the Sanders supporters and convince them to sit out of the election. And a large number of them did. Um, and we got President Trump. Interesting. You know, there is a tool out there called TalkWalker that will allow you to build a what they call a virality map that yep. shows on a timeline how information breaks out over time. And I use it. So open invitation to you. If you ever want a map of anything, I'll, ha I'm, I'm, I'll reach I'm, out for you for the link. Thanks. <laughs> um, OK, now. Um, Despite the mounting evidence, there are still 150 members of Congress, all Republicans, who deny climate change. If that's concerning to you and you'd like to know what to do about it as a business professional, download my new Strategic Communications Guide, How to Win Support for Climate Action, at ericschwartzman.com forward slash climate action. Michael, in your book, you write about industry front groups like the George C. Marshall Institute, which discredits scientific findings and threatens special interests. How are we supposed to remember 
who's on what side and who's constantly lying. It's like I read it in your book and I want to commit it to memory. Then I'm watching the Sunday morning news programs and the guy comes on from the George C. C. Marshall Institute. How do I remember um, who's on the side of truth and who's constantly lying? Can you think of a way that science and technology could solve this problem? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, And there are some tools, uh, you know, that we have at our disposal. SourceWatch is a very good one. Uh, Media Bias Check, I think is what it's called. Um, There are a number of investigative tools uh, out there that you can take, you know, the the alphabet soup of, uh, you know, the various front group uh, names that sound so, uh, you know, Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI. Uh, Well, you know, who would be against competitive enterprise? Well, no, it's a fossil fuel industry front group, a right-wing front group funded by, you know, uh, conservative plutocrats um, that, uh, you know, have tried to pollute these conversations. Um, You know, uh, Americans for Prosperity, right? Who wouldn't be for prosperity? Well, actually, that's a Koch brothers funded front group um, that has worked to discredit renewable energy and to promote climate change denialism. And so it's hard to tell, right? Because the names sound innocent enough until you sort of scratch beneath the surface. Fortunately, there are some tools that allow you to do that. So you literally could be, you know, at your television on Sunday morning with your iPhone or what your PDA and beyond the source watch page, you know, who are these folks? Where are they coming from? Uh, using some of the other tools, like I said, like media bias uh, check. Um, you know, but the problem is that it's the fire hose problem that we talked about before. They're just sort of spitting out all of this misinformation and disinformation, throwing so much mud on the walls that you just don't have time to scrape it all off. Some of it's going to stick. What I would say is we just have to be cognizant of the fact that if it sounds dubious, it probably is dubious. If it sounds like the argument is curiously convenient to the agenda of a powerful vested interest, there's a good chance that you know, this talking head is doing the advocacy of that vested interest. And you might want to, you know, check out their name. Google is a very powerful tool. Um, You know, there's a lot of noise out there too on the internet, but Google is still a powerful tool for figuring out who is this person, who is this organization, where are they coming from? So we just have to sort of do our best to um, navigate this fraught space, our, our current media environment. But, you know, part of it is, you know, uh, knowing, having the resources at your fingertips, because you're not going to remember who everyone, you're not going to remember all these groups and who, you know, which ones are front groups for the fossil fuel industry and which aren't. So you have these tools at your disposal where you, that you can consult with. And, you know, if it sounds dubious, there's a good chance it is dubious. Keep your eye on the prize, I would say. If we remain focused when it comes to climate, the scientific evidence is in, it's real, it's caused by us, it's already causing bad things. Far more bad things will happen if we don't act quickly. We need to take steps that decarbonize our civilization as quickly as possible. Anything that it sounds like it's challenging that basic framework is dubious and it's probably coming from a dubious source. And these dubious sources are basically gaming misinformation. You know, just like, you know, these uh, guys on Reddit gamed the, the, the stock market uh, to inflate the value of GameStop. 
uh, just like, you know, uh, the Russians and Trump gamed social media to win a presidential election. Right now, you know, Google is game too. We see the search algorithm yeah. getting gamed sometimes effectively. They're trying to segue to artificial intelligence. And this is now the new be all end all artificial intelligence. And now that I, yeah. Now that I've been so burned by social media, you know, thinking like, oh my God, this is going to democratize information. And here we are, you know, uh, uh, in a race to the bottom. Now I look at, I'm looking at AI with skepticism, you know, what about you? Uh, what are your thoughts about AI? Do you feel like AI is potentially a problem or I mean, how do you, what do you, how are you thinking about it as a scientist? Well, more or less the way you're thinking about it, you know, that you described it. It's once again, another example, right, of a tool that has so much potential and so much power. But because it has so much potential and so much power, there is um, uh, so much of an incentive for the bad actors um, to, to try to seize control of, weaponize, hijack that tool. So we have to sort of go in with eyes wide open um, here. Uh, we're not going to stop the progression of technology, the advances in artificial intelligence. We need to be at every step questioning how we use and deploy and allow these technologies to be incorporated into our lives because the technology is progressing faster than our ability to understand the implications of the technology and how it can be um, used um, in uh, malicious ways. Um, you know, and that's, that's, that's an important lesson because Hollywood has afforded us, you know, some visions of where we could end up if we don't think very carefully about how we you know, progress through this transition to artificial intelligence. And we're already seeing things like uh, deep fakes, right? You know, it used to be that if you saw it with your own two eyes, you could believe it. Now that's no longer true. It's no longer true with images, but it's no longer true even with video. And so at every step where we think, okay, well, they can't do that to video. Well, now they've done it with video. Well, okay, they can't do that. There is... Um, the power of the technology is the threat of the technology at the same time. And I think we just have to be very sober about that. And we have to be, we have to require that our policymakers be very sober about that. Nearly two decades ago in his book, The Demon Haunted World, your hero, Carl Sagan wrote, I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few, and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues, when the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. He was right, wasn't he? 
he was, and he is a hero of mine, and he saw so much, it was so prophetic, you know, what he said decades ago and, and how we're realizing that today. I think even Carl was a little optimistic um, because he so feared and talked so much about the threat of um, pseudoscience, superstition, horoscopes, etc., crystals. I don't think he quite foresaw the malicious weaponization of anti-science. I mean, he was aware of it and he wrote about it, the way industry groups had thwarted efforts to act on environmental, uh, global environmental problems. In fact, in his final posthumous book, uh, Billions and Billions, which is uh, humorously titled uh, after something that he never said, but uh, Johnny Carson said it in, you know, to sort of mock him. And so we think, uh, you know, of when we think of Carl Sagan, often people say, oh yeah, billions and billions. No, he never said that. Um, he did have a way of uh, pronouncing the B, uh, a hard uh, pronunciation of the B, billions, because he wanted to make sure you understood the difference between millions and billions. Um, that's why you had the sort of hard B there. Um, but he didn't, he was, I think, a little too optimistic to foresee the maliciousness with which anti-science would be deployed today. It isn't just, um, it, it isn't just pseudoscience, which is the haphazard belief in non-scientific um, you know, descriptions or explanations. It's anti-science, a concerted agenda-driven effort to communicate non-scientific, unscientific beliefs that's what's so dangerous today. That's what vested interests have been advocating, have been pushing forward and have been spreading. And I think that Carl would be horrified to see um, how that has metastasized now uh, in our body politic, not just pseudoscience, which he so feared, but agenda-driven anti-science. Yeah. Um what 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 could i mean we're in this sort of cold civil war now between the left and the right um and and despite the mounting evidence you know there are still deniers elect elected officials who are deniers what could we do to make climate denial politically unsafe i think it's happening i'm a little optimistic actually on this one i think facts have a nasty way of uh you know, eventually erasing fallacies. And it just isn't credible when people are witnessing unprecedented extreme weather events. Um, people know people who have lived through them, who have lost houses in wildfires or um, flooding events. Um, so I actually think that denial is, um, you know, is is going extinct um, because it just isn't tenable. What I worry about is that it is being replaced by equally problematic, again, fronts in this new climate war that stop short of denying the science, but downplay the impacts or uh, promote false solutions, or in other ways, deflect, divide, dissemble, um, anything that they can do to make sure that the bottom line remains that we don't take the actions necessary to transition rapidly 
away from fossil fuels. And so I'm really focused on these these new tactics. That is the focus of the new climate war. As we move past denialism, um, these uh, insidious roadblocks that are being thrown in our path by the same forces of inaction, uh, we have to recognize those roadblocks. We need to know how to move them out of the way. Once again, coming back to the original point, because we're so close. We are so close to seeing the action necessary. We can't allow these obstacles now uh, to uh, prevent uh, us from finally acting. All right, this next question might actually be a bit of, re- a, bit of, a, re- of a rehearsal for you, but <laughs> if you were with Secretary Kerry and you guys had had a few drinks and the armor was off and he asked you, what do we do? What do we do, Michael, to get our arms around this situation and how do we get to responsible climate policy? What would you tell him? You know, I would say that um, lean in to it. Democrats too often um, react almost instinctively to the pushback from Republicans uh, with retreat. It's become, and we saw that play out in the Obama years, um, when there was pushback, Democrats retweeted, they weakened the, the legislation that they were putting forward in an attempt to mollify Republicans, only to have them not support the, the legislation anyways in the end. And so it was a win-win for Republicans. They weakened the, the, these efforts and they didn't support them anyway. So Democrats couldn't even make the claim that there was bipartisan support. Um, They're trying to do that right now. I think Democrats aren't buying it um, just from the discussions I've seen recently, especially about climate action, um, where, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden and, um, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, Senate uh, Majority Leader, whose name I'm now forgetting from New York, uh, um, uh, Schumer. Yeah, Chuck Schumer, um, have, have sort of signaled that, yeah, we're going to try to get some Democrats, bring them over um, to get some bipartisan support, but we're not going to weaken, you know, our climate you know, goals or any of these other goals. And if we have to pass it through reconciliation with a strict party line vote of 50 Democrats and a tie-breaking vote by a Democratic vice president, that's what we'll do. So I think they've learned that lesson. And, And the lesson is lean in just because there's pushback. Don't allow that to, don't let that cause you to withdraw from the effort. Lean in and, um, and, and look, in the end, I think Democrats have to recognize that their best prospects for winning more seats and gaining larger majorities in both houses of Congress in the midterm elections is going to be to have an agenda of accomplishment that they can point to. American people want them to act on these crises, the multiple crises we face, the pandemic, the racial justice crisis that we're dealing with right now, and of course, the climate crisis. The American people want us to solve those crises. I think Democrats will be rewarded for actually trying to do something, for being bold and moving forward as assertively as they can within the current political environment. And I think if Democrats instead allow the pushback from Republicans to cause them to recoil in those efforts. I think they'll pay a price. And so I hope that that's a lesson that Democrats have learned. I'm getting the sense that they have. 
There's a story in the paper today about this $8 billion telescope that they're going to launch. I don't know if you, you read anything about I it. Haven't, I haven't had a chance to read anything today. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's magnificent and it's, it's made of gold and they're going to shoot it out there and we're going to discover more about the universe. And, you know, you guys have been looking up for a long time trying to figure things out. And despite all the work we've done, we still haven't found a planet like ours capable of supporting life at the level we can support life and so many different types of life, humans and mammals and insects and birds, so many different creatures because of this delicate balance that we have as a result of science and nature on this planet, right? Yet there are a few plutocrats out there that are willing to sacrifice all that and as you write in your book, you know, it's just unfair. It's unfair for one or two people to get to cancel out what we've got going here so they can make more money. So, so here's my parting question to you, Dr. Mann. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing to save our planet through responsible climate policy, what would you fix? Oh, it's... It's a, it's a good question. Um, and, and I'm going to give you sort of a, an unsatisfying answer. Um, it would be to, to fix the bad faith in our public discourse. Uh, we need some ability to come together around basic facts. I fear that we cannot solve any of the great crises that we face if we can't restore fact based discourse to our public discourse and our political discourse. So I would say the restoration of good faith so that we can agree to disagree about the implications of the facts, but we agree on the basic facts because if we can't do that, we can't solve any of the problems that we face, including the climate crisis. His book is The New Climate War. The fight to take back our planet. It is a gripping read. Uh, Michael E. Mann, distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Pennsylvania State University. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Eric. It was a real pleasure. So we have stopped the live stream, so it's just you and me. I'm still recording it because I haven't figured out how to unrecord without hanging up on the other guy. So, but I'll cut this part out. Yep. Wow, that was huge. I, oh. I mean, you made, I think you might've made my year. Oh, uh, well, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a good conversation and I'm happy to come back again. So let's, let's stay in touch. I will use all of the social media tools at my disposal to try to get this out there. So make, do send me any links when they're yeah. available. And I yeah, I, I, I run about two, three weeks behind to get new shows up. Uh, but I'm really excited about this one and definitely probably it's not going this, away. So <laughs> this, um, yeah, it's, it's just gripping. Yeah, it's got out. a book too. I just ordered it called the age of surveillance capitalism. I'm trying to get her on the show next. Okay. Sounds good. I'll have to tune into that one then. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you.